I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 54, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, volume 1, pages 216 to 229. In mid-April 1908, Hardin, with the cooperation of a Bavarian editor, Anton Stadel, engineered a phony libel trial in Munich, well out of reach of Prussian authorities, to entrap Eulenburg. Hardin charged Stadel with printing an article that claimed the prince had bribed Hardin into calling off his attacks. As part of his defense at the court proceedings, Hardin introduced new and substantial evidence against Eulenburg. Two men, a common laborer and a fisherman, and the Starnbergeress, who had once served under Orlenburg twenty years before, pardoned the pun, were subpoenaed and put under oath. The men testified that they had been seduced by Orlenburg and had fooled around with both the prince and Molka. They were unacquainted with the term sodomy. The fisherman, Jacob Ernst, gave Orlenburg the coup de grace, stating in his testimony that he had never ended his intimate relationship with Orlenburg. Berlin reacted to the new evidence immediately. Orlenburg, in the order of Chancellor Bülow, was arrested on charges of perjury and taken to the county court of Berlin. His castle was also searched for incriminating evidence. He was formally arraigned on May 7, 1908. The Kaiser demanded that he return the Order of the Black Eagle. The Imperial Supreme Court then reversed Hardin's libel conviction and called for a second retrial. Eulenburg attempted to get his trial postponed, but to no avail. The prince was advised that the list of witnesses who were prepared to testify against him had grown at an exponential rate and that the state prosecutor had damning new evidence that included a love letter that Eulenburg had written to Ernst. Eulenburg's trial lasted from June 29 to July 17, 1908. On occasion, Eulenburg became so ill on the witness stand that the proceedings had to be put off and put off and put off until it was clear that Eulenburg was never going to be healthy enough to stand trial. A close friend and member of the Liebenberg Circle at one point urged the prince to commit suicide, but Eulenburg demurred. The legal charade continued for another decade until Eulenburg's death in 1921, interrupted only briefly by a world war. As for the three-ring circus, three-ring legal circus involving Hardin and the rehabilitated Count von Molke, these trials continued from May 1908 through April 1909 when they came to an abrupt end. The Kaiser and the Count country had had enough. After arduous negotiations, a settlement was finally reached in which Hardin agreed not to appeal the latest verdict against him. Chancellor Bülow had his office secretly pay off Hardin's court costs of 40,000 marks for all three trials. Molke withdrew his suit. His peers cooperated in clearing, by clearing his name as a military court-martial.
After a time, he was received again at court functions. The Kaiser took his doctor's advice and went to England to recoup from the scandal. There would be no more trials for any of the key players involved with the scandal, but the moral, political, and military fallout from the Orlenburg affair would continue on for years to come. The aftershocks of the Orlenburg affair. The Orlenburg affair broke the heart of the German people and sent them into a period of national mourning. Private vice has public consequences, and sometimes these consequences prove catastrophic not only for the individuals and families involved, but for an entire nation. But nations, like families, do not mourn forever. When the German people had sufficiently recovered from the dreadful scandal, the expected public backlash began. It was time to put constitutional thumbscrews on the Kaiser and rein in the nobility. The call for governmental for government reform from the top down and for the moral regeneration of society echoed from every quarter of German society, every class, every religious denomination, and every political party, from the Catholic Center Party to the Social Democratic Party. A new wind of conservatism, both political and moral, swept across the nation, particularly among the swelling middle class. Among the first of these reforms was the demand for a more widespread and stringent enforcement of paragraph 175. Public officials and the police were happy to oblige. In the years immediately following the height of the Eulenburg Moltke hardened lawsuits, prosecutions for homosexuality rose 50%. Surveillance of popular places of uranium assignation was increased and a general warning was issued to Uranians that those who chose to violate Germany's anti-sodomy laws would be prosecuted. In addition to the civilian enforcement of paragraph 175, the Reichstag demanded that the Kaiser clean out the audience military stables in Berlin and Potsdam, where the Kaiser had his official residence. This was the bitterest hurt that the Kaiser had to endure, for the military had always been closest to his heart. Isolated incidents of homosexuality in the German military had been reported and punished under the reign of Kaiser Wilhelm I and Chancellor von Bismarck, but under Wilhelm II, the problem had become endemic, not only among enlisted men, but among officers as well. The vice had spread outward from Berlin and Potsdam to the garrison towns of Dresden, Munich, Magdeburg, and Königsberg. Further, the nature of the homosexual offenses went far beyond the lower-class conscript who occasionally rented out his body to an upper-class earning. Top officers of the Imperial German Army had been accused and convicted for violating the persons of men under their command. Police Commissioner Treskow reported that the that Lieutenant General Wilhelm Count von Hobenau, commander of the regiments of the Curassier Guards and Garde Corps in Potsdam, had dared to make his subordinates the instrument of his unnatural passions. Major Johann Count 
von Linar, another officer stationed in Potsdam with the Garde Corps, the elite bodyguard regiment of the German Kaisers, was charged with coercing his aide de camp to masturbate him. Between 1903 and 1906, there had been 20 military officers court-martialed for homosexual offenses, and there was a spate of suicides among the warm brethren homosexuals who were being blackmailed or under investigation by military police. Between 1906 and 1907, six officers took their own life. At the time of the Olenberg Affair, military morale and discipline, even among the elite corps made up of members of the aristocracy, had sunk to a new low. Germany's armed forces had been publicly humiliated, and national security had been compromised. After the Olenberg Affair, the Kaiser took Treskow's advice and ordered that all company and squadron heads treat homosexual violations with the greatest severity and to exercise stricter supervision over their men. Surveillance was increased around the perimeters of the garrisons to discourage homosexual assignations. All known earning officers were advised to retire as they would be shown no mercy if they were later brought up on moral charges. Despite these shakeups, however, German military leaders recognized that the overall effect of the demise of Orlenberg's civilian pacifistic Liebenberg circle was to increase their influence and power, especially in the realm of foreign affairs. As for Germany's homosexual movement that appeared to have been gaining momentum before the Wallenberg scandal, it was driven underground. The SH, the SHC's campaign against paragraph 175 was dead in the water. Hirschfeld had discredited himself at the, at the Mulkey Harden trials, but he still managed to continue to lecture and write until a more favorable political situation presented itself. It was a long wait. Not until 1918, when Kaiser Wilhelm abdicated the throne and the red flag of the Weimar Socialist Republic flew over Berlin did the leaders of the rights of the behind movement feel secure enough to emerge from the shadows and enter the decadent world of post-war Berlin on the eve of the Third Reich, the world of cabaret. In the meantime, the German people had received a quick shorthand course in Homosexuality 101, and what they saw they did not like. Even enlightened liberals like Maximilian Hardin, who had once been an ardent foe of paragraph 175, now perceived the law in a more favorable light. On the international scene, the response was mixed. The English response throughout the Orlenberg affair was subdued, but still negative. England had not yet fully recovered from the Oscar Wilde trials. Besides, the Kaiser was the beloved grandson of Queen Victoria, and as everyone knew, quipped writer Brent McKee, the British royal family was probably more German than the Hohenzollerns. It was not until World War II that England exploited the Orlenberg scandal in its wartime propaganda campaign directed at demoralizing German troops. The French, Italians, and Austrians 
on the other hand, were delirious with joy over the, over the humbling of their historic enemy and rival on the world stage. In the end, there were no real winners in the Orlenberg affair, but there were many losers. Homosexuality in France, from the French Revolution to the Third Republic. It is one of those inexplicable ironies of history that it was Catholic France, eldest daughter of the Church, that was among the first of the European powers to decriminalize sodomy, or to be more precise, to fail to sustain its former pro prohibition as a crime contra nature. Under the Ancien Regime, sodomy remained a capital offense, even though the extreme penalty of the Vendance Plume was rarely carried out. The exceptions were sodomy cases that involved additional crimes such as murder or sexual assault of a minor or blasphemy or where public officials were attempting to suppress the vice by making examples out of one or two notorious sodomite offenders. There were seven sodomites burned at the stake in Paris in the 18th century, the last of whom was a Capuchin monk, Pascal, who was committed to the flames in 1783 under the reign of King Louis XVI. The pattern of homosexual practices in, the, in 18th century Paris and other large urban centers of France was virtually identical to that of Victorian England and Bohemian Germany. The male homosexual was part of the general criminal class without a distinctive subculture, but he had an underground network that served his minimum needs. The French version of Molly's had their favorite haunts for assignation and socialization, secret signals of recognition, favorite pet female names for themselves and their sexual partners, and a campy dialect. Pederasty that in that is sexual relations between older, usually wealthy homosexuals and younger patrons from the working class or local military garrison continued to be the most popular mode of homosexual expression. Typically, the activities of ordinary homosexuals came under police scrutiny only when they became public nuisances, when they were caught soliciting sex, engaging in sodomy or mutual masturbation, or exposing themselves in public places, such as public urinals and public parks. When they were charged with the corruption of a minor, or when they became victims or felicitators of blackmail or extortion, penalties were tailored to fit the seriousness of the crime of the offenses. Repeat offenders were treated more harshly. In most cases, the upper classes, the upper class, got away with a warning, while the less privileged were fined a few pennies and/or imprisoned for a few days or weeks, rarely longer. The first major break France made with her Catholic heritage and the traditional legal system that was based on ecclesiastical law and the natural law came in August of 1789 with the adoption by the National Assembly of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and, and of the Citizen and the establishment of a constitutional monarchy under King Louis XVI. 
The Declaration created a revolutionary new order that touched upon every aspect of French life, political, legal, economic, social, religious, and moral. Men were declared free and equal from birth. Article 1, the font of all men's rights, was the national article, was the nation. Article 3, in matters of private action, including private vice, the citizen was granted full liberty insofar as he did not harm other people. Article 4, the law could only forbid those actions that were detrimental to society. Anything that was not forbidden by law was listed, and none were compelled to do what the law does not require. Article 5. No man could be accused, arrested, or detained, except in the cases determined by the law and according to the methods that the law has stipulated. Article 7. No one could be harassed for his opinions, even religious views, provided that the expression of such opinions did not cause a breach of the peace, of the peace as established by law. Article 10. In the fall of 1791, the National Constituent Assembly approved a new civil and penal code and a and judicial system that would embrace the basic principles enunciated in the Declaration of 1789. Earlier on July 19-22, the Assembly had reached agreement on the category of misdemeanors, that is, minor infractions of the law that do not require a trial or jury. The new code for municipal police and correctional police provided for penalties of fines and incarceration for acts of public indecencies and corruption of the morals of minors and other unseemly actions by members of the same or opposite sex. In August and September 1791, the National Assembly made its determination on the laws regulating the prosecution of felonies. The only sex crime included in the criminal code was female rape. Unlike misdemeanors, felony cases required a trial by jury, and persons convicted of such crimes were open to a prison sentence of two years or more. A separate provision criminalized child prostitution, but man-boy sex acts were not penalized per se. As to the crime of sodomy, the National Assembly passed over the former capital offense in silence. The secularized state now distinguished between crimes in which it had an interest and acts of vice and irreligion in which it did not. Private consensual sexual behavior fell into the latter category. But while the law was silent on acts contra nature, French society, like every other society, had means other than the law by which it manifested its objections to unacceptable behaviors and punished sexual miscreants. French homosexuals were not free from scorn, as Ulrichs believed. Indeed, as the Jesuit-educated statesman Marquis de Condorcet, Marie-Jean-Antoine Caritat publicly stated, Scorn not burning was the best punishment for sodomites. Where the law feared to tread, public opprobrium was as powerful a deterrent as any law. What was more, it had universal application, as it could be practiced by rich and poor alike. 
So while the laws punishing sodomy disappeared, the anti-sodomy attitudes of the French people remained essentially unchanged for the next 150 years. The sodomite remained what he had always been in French society, a moral and social pariah, and sodomy remained a vice to be repressed and a mortal sin to be confessed. The decriminalization of sodomy did not translate into an acceptance of sodomy. Besides, the law was not entirely on the sodomite's side. In July 19 to 22, 1791, the National Assembly adopted legislation that empowered the municipal police to arrest and punish by means of fines or imprisonment without trial any public act of gross indecency, including sodomy and pederasty. In practice, however, the law was ambiguous enough to discourage the police or public authorities from actively repressing the vice. The uncertain law also discouraged many people from reporting public acts involving sodomy or the seduction and corruption of youth to the police. The results were predictable enough. In the decade that immediately followed the workings of the National Assembly, from the guillotining of King Louis XVI and his family to the fleeing days of the First Republic, from the Committee of Public Safety and, to, and its reign of terror to the fall of Robespierre and the rise of Napoleon Bonaparte, the practice of sodomy increased in France. By 1798, the French police expressed concern at the alarming rate that the vice of sodomy had contaminated not only Paris, but the rural provinces as well. Homosexual cruising of public areas by sodomites had become a major public nuisance. The solicitation of young male prostitutes, some as young as 12, by wealthy Parisians and foreign pederasts and sexual tourists added to the overall alarm of public officials. Cases of molestation of adolescent boys by clerics and school teachers were reported with increased frequency. Little changed when Napoleon Bonaparte came to power. Sodomy under Napoleonic law. Although the task of revision and consolidation of French laws had begun immediately after the French Revolution, it fell to General, later Emperor, Napoleon Bonaparte I to complete the work. Plans for the establishment of a special commission to oversee the lengthy project were set into motion soon after the establishment of the tripart consulate in November of 1799 and the subsequent rise of Napoleon to first consul with Jean-Jacques Rouget de Combeserre, 1753-1824 as second consul and Charles-François Lebrun as third consul. It was to Combeserre that Napoleon delegated the leadership of a special commission to create a new legal framework for France and the French Empire. The most famous section of the completed work that combined Germanic laws with Roman principles was the Civil Code of 1804 as distinguished from the Penal Code, known to history as the Code Napoleon. As in the earliest laws of 1791, no specific reference was made to sodomy in the Code Napoleon. 
However, Article 330 of the Penal Code of 1810 provided for a fine of 16 to 200 francs and or a prison term of 3 to 12 months for persons who created a public scandal. Article 331 set the age of consent at 11 years. The definition of rape was expanded to include male rape sodomy. Judges were also granted more latitude with regard to sentencing convicted felons, including the possibility of life imprisonment. Although the leverage granted to police and public authorities did not differ dramatically from that provided under the old 1791 laws, the courts were given more power in cases in which the charge of sodomy was combined with a felony such as murder. It was commonly assumed that Combeserre, a notorious homosexual whose critics dubbed the Pied Piper pedestry, masterminded the anti-sodomy coup. The historical evidence, however, points to Napoleon himself. According to historian Michael David Sabalas, an authority on early 19th century France, Bonaparte had pledged to restore a high level of morals to France and to severely punish violators of the public order but he was not in favor of recriminalizing homosexual or pederastic offenses per se. Sabalas states that Napoleon's views were based on his beliefs that nature had on her own limited the practitioners of the unnatural vice to a very small number. Further, he opposed public trials that generated publicity for the existence of the unnatural vice and were therefore more harmful than helpful in promoting good public morals. Justice was better served, Napoleon believed, by having local police and law enforcement officials, rather than the judiciary, handle cases of sodomy and pederasty that came to their attention. Sabalas cites the landmark Chartres case of 1805 to illustrate the manner in which sodomy incidents were traditionally handled during the Napoleonic era. The case involved an assault, a gay bashing, if you will, against two notorious inveterate homosexuals who were part of an active homosexual network operating out of the city of Chartres. The leader of the small group of soldiers that attacked them had been the recipient of unwanted sexual advances by a masked invert at a local carnival ball. In an effort to get revenge, for the affront to his person, the soldier and some of his regimental buddies planned an assault on the two members of the homosexual coterie whom they were able to entrap by posing as willing customers. The soldiers carried out their plan and were subsequently arrested and charged with assault by the local magistrate. But when the magistrate learned of the motivation for the attack, he did an about-face. He instead charged the two homosexuals with an offense against morals and corruption or attempted corruptions of young people. When the prosecutor for Chartres and the imperial prosecutor locked horns on the question, if the law is silent on the criminality of same-sex relations, did the soldier have the right to defend his honor against a predatory sodomite? An outside opinion from a higher authority was sought out. The matter was submitted to the Emperor Napoleon for a definitive ruling at the next meeting with his Minister of Justice on July 17, 1805, and rule he did.
Napoleon declared that the law did not interfere with private vice, including the unnatural vice. On the other hand, public acts that disturbed the peace were a matter for local law enforcement to deal with as they saw fit. Thus, the Chart police were free to banish or fine or imprison the offending homosexuals. Above all, he instructed there was not to be any public investigation or trial in connection with the incident. According to Sabalas, in the end, for reasons unknown, the police let the most prominent of the two homosexuals go free. Neither he nor anyone else connected with the case spent even one day in jail. His associate had already fled from Chart. The Chart case, of course, involved all adult males. Did the authorities treat pederastic assaults on young boys 10 years of age or younger any differently? It appears that in some situations they did. The Almeri trial of 1807 demonstrated that the public's tolerance level for men who preyed on young boys was extremely low. Jean-Claude Armory was a teacher pederast who operated freely in southern France at the turn of the 19th century. His modus operandi was simple. He would molest his adolescent students until he was discovered and then move on to a new school and new victims. Sabalas reported that in October 1807, Almery attacked a 16-year-old domestic servant who shared his bed. The youth immediately reported the incident to police officials in Avignon. Recognizing that the molestation was a misdemeanor, not a felony under the law, the officer in charge sentenced Almery to six months in jail. However, Sibalas noted, for some inexplicable reason, a trial did in fact take place, and on January 8, 1808, the school teacher was sentenced by the Correctional Court of Avignon to serve one year in prison and pay a fine of 500 francs, the maximum permitted by law. The prefect of the Vaucluse called Armory, one of those depraved beings who could not be sequestered long enough from the society that they infect. And the prosecutor, as well as the judges, publicly stated that the sentence was much too lenient considering the nature of Armory's crime. They resented the fact that the law had tied their hands on in the matter. Sibalis ends the story with a note that once in prison, Almery had to be put in solitary confinement to prevent him from having sex with the other prisoners. Two cases of clerical sex abuse. In addition to a number of other secular cases involving sodomy and pederasty in early 19th century France, Sabalas reported on two sexual abuse cases that involved Catholic priests. What was significant about these incidents is the reactions of the local hierarchy to the molestations. The first pedophile case occurred in Normandy in 1811. A village priest sodomized a young male child. He was preparing for First Communion. He told the boy that this was his penance and that it should be kept a secret like the seal of confession. The child, however, did not keep the secret and told his father and uncles. The men hid themselves in the sacristy and caught the priest in the act when he again attempted to assault the boy. The priest was then brought to the police. Local officials, however, were worried that the scandal 
that would arise if the local officials, however, were worried about the scandal that would arise if they should prosecute the priest. The Minister of Justice was contacted and asked for a determination on how to proceed. When the matter reached the Justice Department, a letter was drafted by an undersecretary for the minister to sign. It instructed the local magistrate to go ahead with the prosecution of the priest under Article 331 of the Penal Code, as the child involved was under the age of consent, that is, under 11. The draft letter stated that fear of scandal should not prevent justice from being carried out for a crime of such enormity. It ended by informing the local magistrate that the prosecution of the offending priest would prevent further outrages of betrayal of the trust of parents as well as the betrayal of the sanctity of the priestly ministry. According to Savalas, the letter was never sent. The minister rejected the recommendations and instead referred the matter over to the local minister of police and the prefect of Calvados. Initially, the angry prefect decided to imprison the priest for several years and then banish him from the region. However, as reported by Sabalas, in the end, he merely had the bishop transfer him to the nearby diocese of Bayou. The second clerical abuse incident reported by Sabalas took place in the diocese of Valence in 1812. In this case, the Bishop of Valence asked the government to mete out a suitable punishment for a priest who had sexually molested children. He explained, you will serve good morals, religion, honor, and the security of families and of the priesthood by taking effective action as soon as possible to rid society of this individual. The records of the Archive Nationale, unfortunately, do not provide any further details that would indicate how this case was resolved. Thus, we have two Catholic bishops who were faced with priests who abused children. One simply transferred him to a nearby parish, while the other turned the priest over to, author to the authorities and insisted that they do their duty by punishing the cleric. It appears that some things never change. Sabalas reports that reports there were only four court trials that involved homosexual activities during the entire Napoleonic period, and three of those involved men who molested boys. A historical sidebar on the Marquis de Sade. The life of the Marquis Donation Alphonse Francois de Sade, one of history's most notorious sodomites, spanned five regimes. He, had, he was born educated, married, tried, and imprisoned under the monarchy of King Louis XV, jailed, escaped, and reincarcerated under King Louis XVI, freed, accused of conspiracy against the Republic, condemned to the guillotine, freed and jailed again under Robespierre, and finally placed in a lunatic asylum for his criminal recidivism and pornographic writings by Napoleon Bonaparte, first consul general and emperor. It appears then that while the Marquis's greatest quarrel in life was with God, he also managed to draw the ire of the crown and state on his head for more than half a century, that is, more than half his, of his adult life. We know that the Marquis engaged in sodomy, therefore, 
he could be properly called a sodomite, but he was he a homosexual? That is, did he prefer homosexuality over normal heterosexual coitus? Although I believe there is sufficient evidence to answer the question in the affirmative, for the purposes of the study of sod, it is not necessary, it is not necessary to do so. First, because as Gilbert Lally, Saad's most influential and sympathetic biographer, has pointed out, the sexual inversion of the Marquis was so tangled up with blasphemy and mystification that there is no possibility of treating it separately from these. Secondly, and perhaps more to the point, is the fact that Saad engaged in sodomy for reasons that were largely peripheral to his homosexual desires, but be they inborn or acquired. In both his life and his writings, sodomy became the expression of his will to power, as well as the ultimate symbol of his hatred and rebellion against God and church, a means of transvaluing traditional moral, familial, and societal value, virtues, including love, fidelity, and honor, into the virtues of Saudian society, lust, infidelity, and dishonor, above all, and above all, evil. To gain some insight into the origins of Saad's transgressive ideology, as well as his actual acts of criminal violence, including forced sodomy, it is necessary to examine his childhood and the complex and troubled relationship that existed between Saad and his parents, particularly his mother, and between the parents themselves. One of the best sources on Saad's early life is Saad, a biographical essay by Laurence L. Bongy, Professor Emeritus of French at the University of British Columbia. Donation, born on June 2, 1740, was the only surviving child of three siblings of Marie-Eleanor de Mel de Camon, Comtesse de Sade, and Jean-Baptiste Joseph-Francois Comte de Sade. From birth, the child was impressed with the idea of his superiority in life by virtue of his class and distinguished maternal ancestry to the royal blood of the Condes. With his father away, Saad's mother raised her son virtually by herself for the first four years of his life. In spite of chronic illness, she was a faithful wife to her wayward diplomatic husband and a loving, conscientious mother to donation with one glaring weakness, her hopeless indulgence toward her son's every desire. Donation's father, the Comte de Sade, had aspirations for a diplomatic career at the Imperial Court in Versailles. He was appointed to a high French government post as the, at the Elector's Court in Bonn, Germany. Bonji claimed that Jean-Baptiste became involved in some unsavory financial irregularities and other misadventures in Bonn that eventually earned him the lifelong enmity of King Louis XV and dashed all hopes for any future at court. When the Comte realized his diplomatic career was going nowhere, he rejoined his wife and incorrigible young son in Paris. When his attempt to purchase a title for himself as a prince of the empire also failed, Donation's father recognized that his future lay in the hands of his son and began to plan and plot accordingly, said Bongi. It must be noted that whenever that whatever his professional disappointments, they did not interfere with the Comte de Sade's 
extramarital sex life. Not only was he an enthusiastic debauter of young women, but of young men as well. Bongi notes that he regularly engaged in sodomy with the manservants and domestic staff of the Hotel de Conte, where the Saad family had their residence. He also employed the services of male prostitutes who brought the Comte in direct contact with Paris's criminal underclass as well as the Paris police. According to Bongi, one of his particular favorites for whom the Comte Comte eventually brought into his household was a young tradesman and male prostitute, Francois Le Poivre. In addition to the elder side, the entertaining Poivre, enterprising Poivre, was also servicing the Bishop of Fréjoux, of Fréjoux Martin Dubelay. Dubelay had replaced Bishop, later Cardinal André Hercule de Floray, who resigned in 1715 to become tutor to the future King Louis XV and who became one of France's greatest diplomats and statesmen. Bonchi reports that the Paris police records for early 1749 showed that young Pierre, young Poivre, charged the bishop twice what he charged John Baptiste de Sade for sexual favors rendered beneath the stairwells of the Hotel de Conde. By this date, his dissolute father had taken the young Saad from his supposedly invalid mother and placed him in the care of his paternal grandmother in Avignon. The timing proved to be a dreadful and decisive error. Two years later, Donatian was entrusted to his paternal uncle, the worldly and unchaste Jacques-Francois-Paul-Alphonse, who was the abbot of the Benedictine monastery of Saint-Laguerre de Brille. This was an even more grievous error. At the age of 10, Donatian was placed in the care of the Jesuits at Louis-le-Grand, Louis a preparatory school for young noblemen, where by the end of, the, of his fourth year, his early predilection for sexual violence was cemented by his exposure to a wide assortment of other vices, including onanism, flagellation, and schoolboy exercises in sodomy. Bonchi reported that by the time Saad was in his early teens, he had become a good-looking bugger. Saad had barely, barely reached his 14th birthday when his father secured a certificate of nobility for him that enabled the lad to enter the elite school at of Chauvelier, the light horse regiment of the Royal Guards garrisoned at Versailles. As soon as his training was complete, he joined the regiment du Roi. He was only 15 and France was poised on, at the brink of war. Three years later, Saad secured a commission with the Carabineers de Monsieur and saw military action in Prussia. By the time the Seven-Year War had ended in 1763, he had attained the rank of cavalry captain and along with that a reputation for dissolute and violent behavior that was already known to his family and to the ever-vigilant Paris police. Once again, his father intervened, this time to secure a financially and socially advantageous marriage for his wayward son with Mademoiselle Renée Pelage de Montreal, 
the daughter of a wealthy and aristocratic family. The marriage took place on May 17, 1763. It was a foregone conclusion that Saad had no intention of abiding by his marriage vows, as he had already prepared a secret hideaway for his future extramarital liaisons. The Crimes, crimes Against Church and State With the death of Saad's father on January 24, 1767, one of the few reasons for whom he appeared to have a genuine affection and respect one of the few persons for whom he appeared to have a genuine, have had a genuine, genuine affection and respect, the last restraint on Saad was removed. The birth of his first son on August 27 of the same year, followed by the subsequent birth of a second son in 1769 and daughter in 1771, had no moderating effect on Saad's horrific private life that already had already landed him in the jail. His behavior had also attracted the king's wrath, and he had become the object of constant surveillance by the police and vice squad. Despite the myth propagated by contemporary writers like Gilbert Lully that the Marquis de Sade was a prisoner of conscience, a man imprisoned by his ideas and his ideals, the historical record clearly demonstrates that Sade was imprisoned for the commission of violent civil crimes that were accompanied by acts of blasphemy and sacrilege. As documented by Bonchi, all of these criminal actions, including the infamous Testard, 1763, Keller, 1768, and Marseille Incidents, 1772, involved the sodomization or attempted sodomization, whippings, and death threats against lower-class women, not all of whom were prostitutes. The Chestard affair took place on October 18, 1763, in the Paris Quarter, where Saad picked up a prostitute, Jean Chestard. Her deposition to the police included the statement that the man, well, she later identified as the Marquis de Saad, threatened to kill her if she did not participate in the blasphemies, in the blasphemous and sacrilegious activities that involved consecrated hosts and the crucifix. The nature of his actions were so shocking that the king was advised of the incident and ordered Saad's arrest. He was jailed briefly at the fortress of Vinzon, then released into the custody of his family. Both before and after the incident, the Paris Vice Squad had Saad under regular surveillance, and the police had warned brothel keepers not to let out their girls to him because of his violent nature. John Testard's pimp had obviously not gotten the message. The actual incident occurred on Easter Sunday morning, April 3, 1768. The 28-year-old Saad lured a respectable domestic and widow named Rose Keller to a rented cottage in Arcul, where he again engaged in a litany of blasphemous acts and the scourging of the young woman whom he also threatened to kill. After her escape from Saad, she reported the incident to the local magistrate. Keller, however, was bribed into silence and dropped her charges against the Marquis. In the meantime, Parisian authorities were advised of the assault on Keller and Saad was arrested and brought to the stricter confines of Pierre Ansar's fortress near Lyon. Here he remained until the king granted him clemency and released him to his wife 
and her family on November 16, 1768. The next notorious incident took place in June 1772 in Marseille. Saad's manservant, Armand Latour, was instructed to pick up some young prostitutes for the Marquis de Sodomize. The incident involved more whippings and reciprocal acts of master-servant sodomy that were performed in front of the frightened girls. Saad also gave the girls some, unex- some experimental sweet treats he had concocted, which made some of them violently ill. They thought they had been poisoned. After learning of Saad's orgy, Marseille authorities ordered the arrest of both Saad and Latour, but the men were already in flight. Saad was accompanied by his sister-in-law, Lady Anne, a canonist whom he had seduced and with whom he had incestuous relations. The final escapade that resulted in his long-term imprisonment took place in late 1774, after he had returned to his residence at Lacoste. This incident involved the alleged abduction of a number of respectable young girls from Lyon and beyond for questionable purposes. His imprisonment on September 7, 1778, again signaled the first of his long-term convictions for sodomy and other crimes against the French, against the Church, and the Republic. By 1772, the year of the Marseille incident, Saad had become a fugitive from the law. Following a trial held in absentia on September 3, 1772, he was publicly beheaded in a mock sentencing at the guillotine as punishment for his alleged crime of poisoning. His body was burned in effigy and his ashes scattered to the four winds for the trial of sodomy, for the crime of sodomy. After cooling his heels in Italy for a year, where he was drawn to the cultural life of Florence and Rome, Saad returned to France in 1777. He was subsequently arrested tried, placed in police custody, escaped, recaptured, and imprisoned at the fortress of Bonson. Seven years later, he was transferred to the Bastille, where he completed a number of pornographic novellas in order to earn some cash. These included The 120 Days of Sodom and Justine of the Misfortunes of Virtue. One anonymous writer for Kirkus Reviews remarked that Saad's greatest distinction as an imaginative writer was to create a self-contained repetition, repetitious rhythm of impossible sexual acts that have no relation to what real people would do or want to do, the likes of which have never been repeated in prose. Shortly before the storming of the Bastille on July 14, 1789, and the unceremonious sacking of his, of his cell by rioters, Saad had been taken to Charenton Asylum, where he remained until his two grown sons, Louis Marie and Donatian Claude Amon, with whom, whom he had not seen for more than a decade, came to claim him in April of 1790. After he had publicly declared his loyalty to the cause of the revolution, Citizen Decide embarked upon a short theatrical and political career that came to an abrupt end when he was accused as an enemy of the public on December 8, 1793. Saad was scheduled to go to the guillotine on July 27, 
one day before Citizen Robespierre's head left his shoulders, but for some inexplicable reason was not brought to the block and was set free, having served 312 days of detention. In the company of the young actress Marie Constance Brunel, Mademoiselle Cazenet, with whom he had formed an intimate attachment that lasted the rest of his life, and her young son, the penniless aristocrat, attempted to make a living as a part-time soldier. He also staged a few of his plays and published some of his, ob some of his obscene works, including Juliet and Justine. His pornographic writings, however, soon brought Saad back behind bars without trial for the last time. The year was 1801. The new regime was the first council of Napoleon Bonaparte. Saad was first sent to Saint Pelagie prison, then to Bassetra prison, and finally, at the request of his family, back to Clarenton Asylum, Charenton Asylum, where he died on December 2, 1814. After the fall of Napoleon under the reign of the Bourbon kings, and for decades to follow, Saad's books were banned in France. Life and Death in Saadian Society, the most important features of the world that Saad created in his fiction and the fantasy world in which he lived was that it was a world without God. However, to deny God was not enough. Saad's entire life was as Bondi has suggested, uh, one long temper tantrum against God and all authority, secular and religious. And that's the end of my reading from the Rite of Sodomy. And there's no time now for the catechism as I'm at 53 minutes already. So I'll end my podcast here. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.